Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. The Department of Justice and the SEC have published some really useful guidance that compliance officers can use as roadmaps when architecting their ethics and compliance programs and anti-bribery and corruption compliance programs. One such item was a document released initially in 2017 without a lot of fanfare. It's called the Evaluation of Ethics and Compliance Programs, and it was authored by then-DOJ compliance consultant Wei Chen. It used several terms that really weren't in common use at the time, including operationalizing compliance. And it's a term deemed so important by the department that when they released a significantly updated version of the guidance document in June of 2020, they teed up the whole document by posing three fundamental questions. Is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? Is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? In other words, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? And third, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? And question three is really another way of asking, has the organization operationalized the compliance program? Today, it's my great honor to welcome my friend and colleague, Tom Fox, to the program. Tom Fox has practiced law in Houston for 35 years. He's now an independent consultant assisting companies with anti-corruption and anti-bribery compliance. He's been a general counsel and division counsel with Halliburton Energy Services, Inc. Tom's the author of the award-winning FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog and the international best-selling book, Lessons Learned on Compliance and Ethics. His second book, Best Practices Under the FCPA and Bribery Act, was released in April 2013. His latest work is an ebook entitled The Compliance Handbook, A Guide to Operationalizing Your Compliance Program, Second Edition. Tom writes and lectures across the globe on anti-corruption and anti-bribery compliance programs. Although Tom's bio really doesn't tell the whole story, not by a long shot. We're here today to discuss Tom's latest book, his 19th by my count. A few years ago, I seem to recall congratulating him for having published his 2000th blog post, a number that is astounding to me. And but what that really means and what really brings it home for me is that when I was in the early planning stages of this podcast, Tom's the very first person from whom I sought advice. I knew that Tom was the host of several popular podcasts already, and I quickly learned that several was more like 30. Yes, you heard me correctly. Tom either hosts or co-hosts a total of 30 podcast series. Lately, following the All-Star game, there's been a lot of talk about Babe Ruth and the comparisons with Shohei Otani. Tom and I share a passion for the game of baseball, so I thought a baseball reference was appropriate here. So the Babe had several nicknames, including the Babe, and also the Great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, and the Colossus of Cloud. Tom, too, is known by several nicknames. The Compliance Evangelist. The voice of compliance, or as I like to call him, the grand poobah of the FCPA blogosphere. Welcome, Tom, and thanks for joining me today. Scott, I don't think there's any greater honor ever than to be named the grand poobah. Thank you for that. My pleasure. So really, I, I love the title of your book. It zeroes in on you know what I think might arguably be the single most important determinant of whether a compliance program is effective is the extent to which it's been operationalized. So what does it mean to operationalize a compliance program, and why is that 
so important? Scott, we've been uh, practicing in this area for quite some time, 15 years maybe. And one of the things that struck me looking back is that when we both started in this area, it was largely paper programs written by lawyers for lawyers. Lots of rules, lots of regulations, lots of check the boxes. And it took really the leadership of the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission moving it to corporations who then moved it to their supply chains and their third-party agents to achieve operationalizing compliance, meaning moving it out of simply being a written paper policies and procedures into actually doing compliance, moving it from the second line to the front line, if we can use that analogy, uh, perhaps in a little bit different way, and to actually make compliance a part of your business processes. And this evolution really has been everyone involved. As I said, it was led by the regulators because they forced companies to do it. Uh, Companies themselves did it. They put it into their supply chain and sales chain. People like you and I advise companies on uh, how to achieve an operationalized compliance program. And really, it's taken efforts from everyone to move it down and to make, I think, compliance is now properly seen as a business process. And that, yes, there are some rules and regulations we need to communicate, but it's largely about doing business. And when it becomes a business process, then everyone does it. And it really is baked into the culture of your organization that we're going to do business in a certain way. And that's going to be in compliance with whatever laws uh, happen to govern what we're selling or what we're doing. So I think that dovetails nicely with this next question. We're expending resources on compliance for many years. has been viewed as somewhere between a necessary evil and the business prevention department. In the preface of the Compliance Handbook, uh, you talk about the growing body of evidence that robust and effective compliance programs lead to a more efficient and profitable organization. Can you walk us through some of the studies and statistics that you cite that supports that argument? Sure. So when we started, compliance, I think, was seen as the land of no. And when you went to the compliance department, you visited with Dr. No, who said, no, uh, you can't do that. And that really engendered, I think, a lot of the difficulties that the compliance functions had early on, which was they were seen as the Department of Business Prevention. All you got out of them was no. Kind of contemporaneously with that, we had groups such as Ethisphere, LRN, ECI, started studying the efficacy of compliance programs to see if there was any sort of business improvement or metric that we could point to. Each of those organizations has about 10 to 15 years of data now and what they call a best practices compliance program, whatever they might call it. And uh, ECI is probably the best example. They call it the world's most ethical companies, but it's compliance program, it's culture. It's a variety of things that they all look at. And when I first came into this arena in 2007, 2008, I went to an ECI conference and they posited that there was a delta of four point plus percent greater profitability with companies that received the world's most ethical designation than the standard and poor's 500 index. And that really struck me back then and has stuck with me. But the thing that now I see is that number is not 4.5%. It's been as high as 14%. It's still double digit. So within the last 10 years, we've had a growth in the greater profitability and greater ROI of companies that certainly Ethisphere has looked at and have been awarded the world's most ethical designations. But LRN and ECI have also come to that. We've had academic studies as well. And academic studies, one of the most powerful ones, 
looked at 15 years of uh, anonymized whistleblower reports, Kyle Welch. And Kyle Welch posited that there it was not simply companies that had a hotline or a speak up. They had a speak up culture, meaning that they listened to their employees. I found a stunning number that he came up with was 20% less expenses in litigation, in regulatory enforcement action, in actual uh, investigative costs by companies that had a fully operationalized speak-up culture, not just a whistleblower line or a way to report things, but actually embrace that as a corporate value and a corporate culture. And this was a material difference. 20%, you think of 20% of the litigation costs at Exxon. I don't know what that is, It's except it's big. And when you start find material changes, that got a lot of people's attention. So I've seen a couple of other studies that looked at the return on investment. One study, once again, I'll have to think about the author's name, but from Harvard looked at negative return on investment where bribery and corruption, companies that did not have a robust bribery and corruption program, they may initially get more business, but there was a negative 30% over a five-year period because, of course, you know, once you pay a bribe for a piece of business, they've got you. You're going to have to continue to pay a bribe. Your work is usually not as high standard simply because you haven't had to compete for it fairly in the marketplace. You cheated to get it. So there's a few academic studies coupled with the uh, ECI, LRN, and Ethosphere reports, I think we've finally shown that effective compliance programs equates to more efficient business processes, which equates to greater ROI. So yeah, you, you referenced the Kyle Welch study. Normally, I wouldn't be able to uh, pull the name of an academic out of thin air, but Kyle and Carrie Penman were our guests on episode four of Freddy Strategy. So uh we had a whole episode around that study. It was pretty compelling that active hotlines have a measurable financial benefit. Really interesting episode and study at your site. So the FCPA resource guide and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs uh, guidance, although they were initially released to assist organizations to elevate their anti-bribery and corruption programs, you know, compliance people do what they do and they look for authoritative guidance to apply in the absence of authoritative guidance that might speak to a, a specific area of compliance, these documents have been widely applied to a much broader spectrum of organizational risk. You know, in fact, the CFTC, the OCC, OFAC, DOJ Antitrust, and the FTC have each recently shown that these seminal documents had a pretty profound impact on their own published guidance and enforcement actions. So, you know, it was sort of validating, I think, to those early adopters who took what had been FCPA authoritative guidance and applied it more broadly, because that is, in fact, is what you know some of the regulators are now doing. They're embracing a lot of those same concepts. So in creating compliance policies, procedures, and training, what are some of the steps that you think organizations should take to factor authoritative guidance into the design and implementation of their programs? When we started, there was really a paucity of of statements, although the Department of Justice, in my mind, at least since 1999, has clearly communicated their expectations. Their expectations have evolved as compliance programs have evolved. So you do have to sort of keep up with that. But as far back as uh, 1999, we had an enforcement action, Matt Caponetti, which laid out a best practice compliance program. In 2004, 
We had an opinion release, JP Morgan opinion release, dealing with a best practices compliance program. You mentioned the original FCPA resource guide, which was released in, I believe, November 2012, which laid out the 10 hallmark framework that we all embraced. That document updated in July 2020, which added a new hallmark. So now we have just the hallmarks, not 10 hallmarks, because they put a root cause analysis in. But even in that interim period, we've had pronouncements. One of my favorite was the FCPA pilot program, which laid out many of the factors which became not only evaluation of corporate compliance programs that you referenced that Wei Chen largely uh, authored, but also the 2019 update to the evaluation of compliance programs. That was updated in June 1 of 2020. Also in 2019, we had two of the reports you referenced, the OFAC compliance framework, and then the antitrust division, their guidance on evaluation of corporate compliance programs from the antitrust perspective. So the Department of Justice has really given us, I think, Scott, some pretty clear guidance but their thinking has evolved. And it's not that they're sitting in their offices just thinking about how can we evolve. They're talking to people like you. They're talking to people like me. They're talking to companies who are involved in enforcement actions, who bring a new development or a new innovation to the DOJ and say, what do you think about this? Well, would you consider this for part of our remediation? So the DOJ is evaluating and innovating and coming up with new ideas based upon enforcement actions and what they're seeing in the marketplace. And that comes to us in the form of either speeches or written guidance that DOJ has released. And probably the most recent from 2020, the update, was really the focus on data analytics. Data analytics has been around for quite some time. Some people started this uh, four or five years ago, really talking about it and writing about it. But the DOJ made clear, Mr. Chief Compliance Officer, you have to have access to your company's data. But it's not just access. It's actually using that data in continuous monitoring to lead to continuous improvement of your compliance program. So I think the the regulators have done their job. And and then it's now our job, you and me, plus our client's job to really implement these. But we used to say, well, you have to read the tea leaves. Well, I think the tea leaves were always there. But now you don't have to read the tea leaves because we get these announcements on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs a year later, the update, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, at this rate, we'll probably get some more information from the Department of Justice run by the new administration. But it's all information that a compliance professional can use to upgrade and innovate and enhance their compliance program. Well, thanks, Tom. And I, I agree. I, I think things really have evolved and matured in recent years. Certainly, the government is much more well-versed in you know, compliance and how it works in practice inside of kind of a wide range of, of type of organization. You still kind of encounter this, you know, what can be a pervasive mindset that compliance programs and ethical culture are the exclusive responsibility of the compliance team, which, you know, I think... You and I are in violent agreement that that is not the case. You know, in your book, you explored the role of a, a broad range of professionals who, you know, have shared compliance responsibility. And obviously compliance officers, you know, that's not in question, but, you know, boards of directors, uh, human resources, internal audit. And, you know, sometimes, you know, organizations have a separate group on that focus on internal controls, communications, you know, training. All of these professionals in, in the aggregate you know, have shared responsibility. So what are some strategies to take, you know, these distinct functions and to bring them into alignment 
you know, to meet that combined objective of operationalizing the compliance program. So really the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document released by the Department of Justice, I think gave the DOJ's most recent thinking. We always knew that a risk assessment was really the foundation of your program. You had to assess your risks and manage your risks. But they connected your risk assessment to your risk management program, whatever you might call it, but then continuously monitoring that risk management program using data and data analytics, and then looping that information back to enhance and evaluate your compliance program. So that's really one strategy, I think, that they laid out as well as as any of us could have asked for. The risk assessment that many of people like you and I help companies with was done every couple of years. Well, the DOJ said it needs to change when your risks change. And frankly, I can't think of a better example on June 1, 2020, of risks changing, that the entire world's risks changed because of COVID-19 and we were all working from home. Well, now we're going to return to work. So everyone's risk changed. It gave everyone an opportunity to perhaps reassess through a risk assessment, what are our risks today, and then put in a risk mitigation plan. But utilizing uh, all of those or many of those other corporate disciplines you talked about, I was on a podcast this morning with a, a talent acquisition specialist, and she said, it's the role of HR to start talking about your corporate culture the minute you engage a candidate, and that's compliance. It's culture. It's the expectation of how we will do business here. That can be in a pre-employment interview. That can be an on-site or a Zoom interview. If a second or third round of interviews comes, you have senior management talk about it. When that new hire is onboarded, you talk about that. And so clearly, or at least clearly in my mind, HR has a huge role in communicating values, culture, and ethics. Conversely, if we want to go all the way up to the board of directors, I'm pretty sure you make presentations to boards of directors. And often that presentation is their annual training on compliance. But that doesn't get to the legal obligations boards have now under Delaware law. Caremark and its progeny now say, you have to have a program in place to manage your risks. And the best example I can point you to is Bluebell Ice Cream. They're exclusively an ice cream manufacturer located in Texas. What's their highest risk? Food safety. And they didn't have any food safety risk management at the board level. And so they were sanctioned by that in the form of a shareholder lawsuit, a settlement. So boards have a role. It's up to the chief compliance officer or outside advisors like yourself and and myself to educate the board on their role because they have an oversight role. So it's really top to bottom, touched on culture and ethics, but that tone is set by senior management. And if they're not talking the talk that they are walking, walking the talk that they are talking is not going to be there. I just really see it all as an integrated approach now. Well, I, I think that's an important message. So you touched upon this in one of your answers to a previous question, but when the Evaluating Corporate Compliance Programs guidance was first released, people began referring to root cause analysis as as the 11th hallmark, given the amount of emphasis that the document placed on applying lessons learned. You know, I mean, long before this document, applying lessons learned to your ethics and compliance program has always been a best practice. And I think for some, a baseline expectation. I mean, what are you doing, you know, to make sure that when something blows up and you get to the other side of it, are you looking at it retroactively? And then, you know, is there anything you could have been doing differently that would have caused you to maybe detect this behavior sooner 
or, or set of controls that were proven to be ineffective or, or didn't exist. And now in light of this new information as a result of, you know, whatever that incident is, is at the, at the root. What did you do about it? So what is it about root cause analysis that's just so important? Let me uh, see if I can tell a little story to try to explain it. In a prior life, I was a trial lawyer and I defended corporations in contract disputes, personal injury cases, uh, property damage cases along the Texas Gulf Coast. And that meant largely in the petrochemical industry. And if there was an accident on a plant, 100% of the time there was a root cause analysis. These were largely unionized plants, and it was a union management team jointly that did the root cause analysis. And these were plant guys. These were not lawyers. These were not professionals. These were plant guys. And the one reason they did a root cause analysis was to figure out what happened so it didn't ever happen again. They didn't really concern themselves with liability. They didn't concern themselves with liability at all. And they were taught two things. Report facts, don't assess blame. Report facts, don't assess blame. Now, when I got one of those reports as a defense lawyer, that told me whether I had to settle the case or take it to trial because it was golden. It was what had happened. Now, there may have been some contributory negligence or perhaps other factors. But if the plant guys said the guy screwed up, that was good enough. And if the plant guy said the company screwed up, that the company screwed up. And so I learned from that the power of that, particularly when you don't assess blame when you report facts. And so when the the Department of Justice, in the original evaluation, we started reading about root cause analysis, for people like you and me, it seemed almost secondhand nature. But in our profession, it was almost not revolutionary, but evolutionary. And people started saying, well, we have to do a root cause analysis. Well, yes, because you don't want that problem to happen again. That's what a root, root cause analysis can provide to you. It's different than an investigation. It's a different focus and a different set of questions. And I hate to say this about my lawyer brethren, but we're not real good at root cause analysis. It's more of you analytical minds that tend to be better at that. It's a different skill set. And so bringing that skill set to bear, the three parts of any compliance program are prevent, detect, and remediate, but remediate in a way so that it doesn't happen again. Fix the problem. And you can't fix the problem unless you do a root cause analysis. You know, as we're sitting here today, I'm having a flashback because um, long before the term was called root cause analysis, or at least it wasn't, you know, sort of widely used outside of you know, what you're talking about, law enforcement agencies like the FBI, branches of the military, all do things called a after action report. Some, you know, large operation that had an operations plan, a lot of resources deployed. And then there was some sort of violent altercation that ensued or, you know, a series of arrests and things. Maybe often things don't go exactly according to plan. And inevitably in a you know, situation like that, the Bureau, other law enforcement agencies, military agents, you know, military departments do an after action report, which is a, you know, kind of a very in-depth study of what was the plan? What happened? What caused things to go sideways? And how can we prevent something like that from happening again? Was there a flaw in our plan? Is there was just something that we didn't anticipate that we didn't plan for? What is it? And it's just a very important thing. I like what you're saying about the plan. It's not an academic exercise. It's like, this is a bad experience. We're all in agreement. We don't want it to happen again. You know, let's just figure it out. For those that don't know history are doomed to repeat it. That's that's what this is, right? Interesting parallels. I, I had never really kind of thought about an after action report in the context of uh, root cause analysis, but it just kind of popped into my head. That's a great analogy. So you use another term in your book that I'm also very fond of that I think really resonates in government guidance, which is 
conduct at the top. There's a lot of, I think, very important terminology that came out of that doc, conduct at the top, which sounds like tone at the top, and yet there's a, there's a big difference. How important is driving accountability to the goal of operation and compliance? And what are the keys to ensuring that compliance is, is everybody's concern? So you're absolutely right to point out the difference in conduct at the top and tone at the top. Tone at the top is one of the most ubiquitous phrases in all of compliance over the past 15 years. And that subtle shift by that change of words really moves it from a passive to an action. It's a verb. What is the conduct? What are you doing to demonstrate that tone? And that is actions by management. It can be as stayed as emails, but it can be uh, videos. It can be saying a word about ethics and compliance in our culture every time you give a corporate speech. It can be vetoing deals that didn't meet the ethical requirements or compliance requirements of the company. It's putting those values into practice. So shifting that tone or shifting that language, I should say, was, I thought, a brilliant step by the Department of Justice to drive home. You have to have some action. And as anyone who's ever heard me talk knows that I say the three most important things about a compliance program are the following document, document, document. If you haven't documented that conduct, that conduct never happened in regulators' eyes. So every time you have some conduct by senior management, document that, whether it's a speech, whether it's an email, whether it's a video, whether it's a deal, whether it's a turning down a particular third party, whether it's turning down a merger candidate, whether it's turning down a potential senior executive or board member, document that so you can demonstrate we do this in what we say and we do it in our conduct or what we do. So uh, I think that's really important, and it really puts the onus on senior management to do compliance, not just simply talk about it. I'm also equally enamored of the fact that there's a slight air of menace to the term conduct at the top, meaning you, senior management, could be, but maybe don't necessarily want to be, the throat to choke. It is you that we're going to hold responsible for this, and the onus is on you to get it right. So in your book's dedication, you write some really touching words about and credit Dick Casson with having encouraged you to write your first book and as someone who mentored you when you first started writing on compliance. And, and for those of you that don't know Dick, uh, which is probably a small minority in this audience, Dick's the founder of the FCPA blog, a widely read and, and really important publication on all things FCPA. And it, it also talks about a wide range of compliance issues, not just FCPA, but certainly FCPA is at the center. And the FCPA blog is really how you and I first met in 2008, shortly after I published my very first blog post as a guest blogger for the FCPA blog. And I don't mind telling you that my first draft of that blog post was a, a swing and a miss. It was way too long, way too detailed. And Dick very patiently explained to me how blogging you know, was different than other types of thought leadership and concise, punchier, and, and his editing was great. And you know, that one editorial interaction with Dick really helped me find my voice. Maybe not as impactful a mentor to you, but certainly somebody that was very helpful to me in my earlier days of doing thought leadership in the subject. And then you were kind enough to reference my blog post and some of your own writings back then. That's really how we first met. You know, we ended up co-authoring some articles, white papers. More importantly, we've been friends now for better than 13 years. The topic of that initial blog post was risk-based due diligence of third parties. Uh, back when not only was that not a hallmark of an effective compliance program, 
it was rarely happening. You know, fast forward to today, and that concept has really spawned a cottage industry. And you really can't talk about any bribery and corruption without an in-depth discussion of third-party due diligence. And then as now, the overwhelming majority of FCPA violations, greater than 90% a year, are committed by third parties such as sales agents, freight forwarders, JV partners, lawyers, and accountants. So why do global organizations continue to struggle with implementing a risk-based approach to third-party due diligence? And also, what are some of the keys to architecting and implementing an effective third-party anti-corruption program? So let me start with the second one first, because to me, that's a little bit easier answer to the question. Tom's five-step risk management process for third parties is as follows. Number one, a questionnaire completed by the business representative on why you want to do business with this third party. If you can't justify doing business with a third party from a business perspective, you have no reason contracting with them. Number two, your third party should fill out a questionnaire, some very basic minimum information, which will allow you to set an appropriate level of due diligence. So such things as ownership, ultimate beneficial owners, where incorporated, address of incorporation, are they, do they have a compliance program or have they been trained on a compliance program, business references, legal references, and financial references. And in my mind, one of the most important things is to make them sign the document. You can put an attestation on there, recognizing that, yes, that is a piece of paper, but many people think, I believe that's a stop and think control that when people put their signature on something, they're thinking that I have to tell the truth on this. Number three is due diligence and going to the various levels of due diligence and types of providers, but that's the next step. And then you have to evaluate that due diligence. If there are red flags, they have to be clear. Number four is contract terms and conditions. I should say compliance terms and conditions in your contract. The DOJ has given us a minimum specification of what that means but there's a pretty well-established number of compliance terms and conditions you can and should put in a contract with a third party. And then number five, and frankly, the most difficult step is monitoring the relationship after you've signed the contract. You actually have to manage that relationship. I shouldn't say monitoring, managing that relationship. That may mean auditing. That may mean monitoring. That may mean additional annual certifications that there have been no compliance violations. That may mean certifications of training. It may mean you visiting with that third party if they're critical enough, certainly looking at their invoices, looking at where payments are going and managing that relationship. So those five steps are really, I think, the five steps you need to engage in around a third party risk management. As to why it continues to be 90% of all cases, I think it's a, really a systemic reason, Scott, that the name of this podcast is Fraud Each Strategy. And fraud is when someone steals money from their own corporation. Bribery and corruption is when somebody steals money from their own corporation and pays it to someone as a bribe. That payment has to go out in some manner. I'm still a big believer in follow the money. And usually that money is funneled through a third party. There can be other instances. It can be some sort of direct payment or rebate or a discount, but usually it involves a third party. And I think it's just the nature of how money is passed in the form of a bribe to violate the FCPA. So it's, it's really a structural function of money's going to bleed out on the sales side in bribery and corruption as opposed to fraud where there may be theft of money, but it's going to be then taken by the person committing the fraud, whether it's an inside employee or a supplier or someone else. You devote an entire chapter of your book to the topic of internal controls. You know, having worked in several accounting firms, having worked at 
a firm that was 40% internal audit services. I feel like I'm someone who has been a member of several cults and the, the religion is that they're preaching is internal controls. So certainly in my mind, uh, devoting that amount of ink to internal controls is perfectly appropriate, but I don't know if I'm in the majority. But it's a topic that makes a lot of people glaze over. And yet, you know, if your internal controls aren't aligned to your compliance program, you would be hard pressed to support the argument that your program's effective. You know, I mean, I think we're talking about operationalizing compliance. It's what are the controls underlying your compliance program and how do they work, right? So what are some examples of internal controls that are of critical importance to the overall success of the compliance program, Tom? So when you use the phrase glaze over, that's absolutely spot on. When I started in compliance, when someone would come to talk to me about internal controls, I would say, wait, 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 wait. I'm a lawyer. I do cool stuff. Internal controls, that's those people down the hall. I don't do internal controls. I had uh, my Damascene moment, if I can use that phrase, occurred when I read in September of 2014, the 2013 COSO internal controls framework. I don't know why I read it, but I sat down and read it. And I looked up and said, who wrote this? This is compliance controls. This is brilliant. And I was, as Paul on the road to Damascus, I had a revelation. And the revelation was the backbone of every compliance program is internal controls. If you don't have functioning, effective internal controls, you have no chance of having an effective compliance program. And so, although I'm the compliance evangelist, I'm also the internal controls evangelist. And I try to talk about internal controls, most particularly to lawyers. You get it. People like you get it. You were one of those people I said, go talk to them. And you guys were way ahead of us lawyers. And when I talk to this day about internal controls and a compliance program, you can tell the lawyers in the room because they do. Their eyes glaze over 30 to 90 seconds into the talk. And then there's a minority like yourself who are going, yeah, yeah, spot on. So it really was a revelation. And I'm firmly convinced that if you don't have internal controls, and the to me, the beauty of the COSO framework was, no, it was not designed as a compliance program. It was designed as internal controls for financial and accounting. And so it's got the basic concepts of segregation of duties, of some very, very basic accounting concepts. And when you go in and talk to, or when I go in and talk to a company and talk to them about internal controls, they have about 95 to 98% of all compliance controls in place. They just don't call them compliance controls. They call them accounting controls. And the example I give is, I say, okay, do you reimburse for employee travel expenses? Answer, yes. What do you require? Well, they have to fill out a form. They have to attach the receipts. They have to say where they've gone. They have to give the business reason for the trip. If they've entertained someone, they have to attach that receipt and they have to name the person that they've seen. And, and if we really do it right, it's they have to name the business purpose of the lunch. And they have to sign it. And then it goes to their manager. And I said, guess what? You've just named it compliance control. And then the light bulb goes off. The good compliance controls are just good financial controls. So there may be some additional controls you need around third parties, but having your basic financial controls in place is going to give you most of your compliance controls. So it's very big picture to look at, but in many ways you already have it because every public company has to have those sorts of controls in place. 
I've done this exercise where I've taken the entire COSO framework, the five objectives, the 19 principles and 84 points of focus and mapped them to the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. And that gives you your gap analysis. And from your gap analysis, you can see where you have gaps. And then you just remediate based upon those gaps. So I find it to be a hugely important part of your compliance program. Uh, you've gotten me started. I probably can't stop. Probably should end there. But it really is the absolute backbone of your compliance program are your internal controls. So I'd be remiss if we didn't touch upon confidential reporting and investigations. My wheelhouse. So what advice would you give an organization that hasn't devoted much time and attention to confidential reporting and investigations? What are those all important first steps that they should take to address this shortcoming, if it is a shortcoming in their program? Sure. So uh, it all starts with your intake. How are you getting your information? Is it a speak up culture? Is someone gone into their supervisor's office? Has there been an anonymous report to your hotline? Has one of your controls ticked off? Has there been a request? A control would be, we're only going to pay our vendors outside the United States in either the country they have done the service, performed the service, or in their home country, yet they want to be paid in Panama. They want to be paid in the Shetland Islands, or they want to be paid some other place so that your control is, is ding. Then you have to respond, and you have to triage the complaint, and you have to get it to an appropriate level of investigation. So is it an HR complaint about someone sexually harassing me, or, or is it an HR complaint that someone got a promotion that was unfair to me? And then from there, you slot it to an appropriate level of investigation. You actually investigate the matter and close out the investigation in an appropriate time frame. But if it's a, a really a potential fraud, a potential loss of money to the company, potential uh, FCPA or other legal violation, then it needs to be elevated up to senior management, perhaps even to the board. And here it's critical that you bring in, and I'm a big believer in this, if you have a serious problem, you have to have a serious investigative team. And that means outside counsel. That means someone like yourself or some other professional who can do an investigation. I'm a big believer in outside counsel or outside investigative firms, I should say, because you also bring professional distance and dispassion to a project. You're not doing business on a routine basis. So there's no potential conflict of interest. One of the things that I still talk about from Sharon, the Sharon Watkins stories is when she made her whistleblowing and asked that it be investigated, she said, please don't use Vincent Elkins. Why? Because Vincent Elkins was Enron's regular counsel. Well, and I tell people today, if you ask me to evaluate legal work I did for a company, I can already tell you the answer. I don't need to do an investigation. It was great. And Vincent Elkins investigated the legal work it had done. It found nothing wrong with it. So you have to have outside counsel. You have to have counsel with no conflict of interest. You have to have professional counsel. And you have to have counsel that has developed a relationship with the regulators that the counsel can be trusted. So that means counsel with credibility with the regulators. And they're going to require a level of professionalism from you as the entity being investigated that they then can go to the regulators and say with authority, uh, when the regulators say, are your, your documents locked down? You can say yes. Have you investigated this thoroughly? You can say yes. So it's really having all of that in place. And you can develop it on the fly, but it's much better if you don't have to. If you've got this planned out, 
so that at the triage stage, when the report comes in, when the whistleblower anonymous report comes in, however it comes in, you can triage it and get it to the right level of investigation. I had to tell you, man, it, it, you know, this is just yet another conversation that I had with you that's just been terrific. It's just the first time we've recorded it. So uh, uh, I always enjoy talking to you about all things compliance. You, know, you always bring a unique point of view and a, and a very scholarly perspective on things. And this has been great fun. Really, really appreciate you coming on. How can people download your book? Actually, you could even buy a hard copy of it. So it's an ebook and it's available. A hard copy, LexisNexis backslash Fox, uh, the Compliance Handbook. Hopefully, I'll send you the link, Scott, and you can put it in the show notes. But, of course, I'd love for anyone to purchase the book. It's designed for anyone who wants to design a compliance program, create a compliance program, or enhance a compliance program. So, hopefully, that's uh, broad enough to cover everybody. Well, this has been great. That was Compliance Luminary and author of the Compliance Handbook, Operationalizing Your Compliance Program, Tom Fox. This concludes this episode of Parodied Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director and FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Parodied Strategy. So if you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatsstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.